0: Welcome back to The Conservatine. I'm your host, Chase Levitt, and today I would like to welcome our guest. He is the Libertarian candidate for Utah's 2nd Congressional District, uh, which just became, well, it will become open come September when Congressman Chris Stewart resigns officially. And uh, Brad Green here is looking to to replace him. So, um, Brad, thanks for coming on.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, It's always good to talk to fellow freedom lovers.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it is. It's it's super awesome. And if you want to take a second, like a minute to just explain who you are and and why you're running for Congress.
1: Okay, thanks. I can do that. So uh, my name is Brad Green. I am an entrepreneur. I own a, a series of fulfillment warehouses, websites, and hardware stores. Uh, many across Utah will know my hardware stores, which is Southwest Plumbing Supply. And those outside of the state may know uh, my largest online presence is a company called plumberstock.com. And uh, so that's what I do for work. Um, outside of work, I'm a family man. I'm married, I, I have four kids. I've been married now uh, 18 years, um, which is a good long time, and I'm I'm happy happy to have been able to do that. Uh, I've been involved in politics for quite a while. I think um, I probably started about 2006, and I ended up in the Republican Party in 2008. I became a precinct chairman, and Connor Boyack was my uh, vice chair, and he and I uh, are old friends. Since then, all of my work up until about three years ago was in the Republican Party. I was the Audit Committee Chairman. I was on the State Central Committee. I was on the Executive Committee. I've helped a host of Republicans get elected to office uh, in Iron County, Utah, where I'm from. And um, about three years ago, I left the Republican Party. Uh, Maybe only two years ago, I left the Republican Party, joined the Libertarian Party, mostly as a result of the meddling that I see in election laws in the state, as a result of legislative Um, overreach. And um, my opinion is that the Libertarian Party has always reflected my views in almost every area. And uh, I jumped into the Libertarian Party and tried to help them fix the areas that I thought were inappropriate. And so now they represent my views extremely well. The Republican Party, their platform does, but oftentimes their candidates don't. And there's a reason for that, but that's not the reason for my run. My reason to run is I think I'm I'm the best candidate for the job I've been asked uh, or um, suggested that I run by several people that I respect and uh, I'm actually running to win. I'm not the, what you would consider the stereotypical libertarian, um, both in that I have Republican roots as well as that I want to win. And I think I have what it takes to win.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that answer. And thank you for letting everyone know who you are. Um, my next question I want to ask you is what is the biggest problem that you see is facing people in the 2nd Congressional congressional District, Utah, or just our country as a whole?
1: Man, you couldn't get a more broad question. So um, I think that the, the biggest issue facing um, Utahns in Congressional District 2 is probably federal lands. You know, every state west of the Mississippi, I'm sorry, west of Colorado, has um, a large portion of their land claimed by the federal government. And while Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says that the federal government will have forts, ports, and 10 miles squared of the land that they will use, and that's what they're authorized to use by the Constitution and to own, they have extended that greatly. And and that was common when we were all territories. All of these, what now are called states of the Republic, um, were territories. They had a lot of land that was the federal government's and they were supposed to turn that over when a state became a state. And that hasn't happened. It happened east of Colorado, but it didn't happen west of Colorado. And so in Congressional District 2, a huge majority of the land, I think it's somewhere around 80% of Congressional District 2, is claimed by the federal government. And I think that that impacts our our housing affordability. It impacts the ability for us to have um, tax revenue or even economic activity in our district. So in in District 2, I think that's the biggest issue. In Utah, generally, I think uh, federal government overreach is probably the bigger issue. Um, Taxes maybe is the biggest portion of that. I know that's that's my biggest talking point. The, the power to tax is the power to destroy. And the federal government taxes everything. And then the state taxes everything. And then our local municipalities tax some things. Uh, the income tax probably is the most destructive policy in the history of mankind. And that, that impacts Utahns. That impacts everybody in the United States. And I would get rid of them if given the chance and if not given the chance, I would try and create the opportunity or create the chance. All
0: right. Thank you for that. My next question for you is what makes you different from the Republicans um, who are running? Um, how do your views not necessarily align exactly with, let's say Celeste Malloy, who just got the Republican convention She won the Republican convention and other candidates who may be gathering signatures. What differentiates you and why should people give you their vote?
1: That's a great question. Thank you. I think there's a lot of things that differentiate me. Now, there are a ton of Republicans running for this seat, but I think currently right now there's probably only three left with a shot. Celeste has a shot because she won a convention. There's some disputed information there, but it doesn't matter. The Republican Party, it appears, is going to certify her. The state's going to accept that. She is the convention candidate. And it appears that Bruce Huff and Becky Edwards have the ability to actually make it on the ballot through signature gathering. And um, the in, in the Democrat field, I don't know much about those candidates, and that's okay. What differentiates me? I think that I'm probably the most conservative by both Republican standards and libertarian standards. I'm probably the most liberty minded of the candidates. I'm a constitutional originalist, which is something that differs from all of the Republican contenders for sure, and most likely the Democrat contenders as well, uh, in that I believe that the Constitution says what it says and doesn't say what it doesn't say. I think that the federal government is limited to a, a number of enumerated powers. And I think that that number is 16, but some people argue it's 20 based upon some other things that are maybe suggested. That's okay. I, I think that it's it's limited to those things only and everything else is left to the states or to the people respectively. And that seems really fundamental, but I, my experience from those running for Congress for this seat, uh, they, they don't have that belief behind them and they're not quite so rigid about it. There's a lot more, I think, um, the immigration is a big issue right now. The Constitution doesn't actually speak to immigration, but it speaks to naturalization. I would make immigration legal again so that we don't have so much black market immigration that's happening. I would make it easy for people to get in. We have to have a background check to make sure we're not letting criminals in. But other than that, we ought to let people come participate in the American experiment so that they're not coming here, stealing identities and creating a, a crime problem. Uh, man, I'm trying to think there's a lot of other things but um clearly the fact that i run as a libertarian is different than the others i'm a businessman i'm a successful businessman um i don't know bruce huff's profession um but i i i'm not i'm not in politics i mean I, i get involved in politics mostly because i hate what politics has done to our country and that makes me different than those that are running
0: right thank you for that um now as I was reading through your website, because a couple days ago I had heard your name for the first time and I was I was like, hey, I wanna go check what you're about and what you believe and stuff like that. And as I was on your website, I saw a very um crazy story that happened with you with um down in Brazil. Uh and that experience is kind of shaped in a way how you feel about the Second Amendment. I don't know if you uh if you are up to sharing it. Um Talking about why that experience has shaped your view on the Second Amendment and stuff like that. So,
1: you know, I love that you asked about that experience that I had in Brazil, and I and I like telling the story because it has a great ending. Uh, not yeah. all gun violence stories have a great ending. Mine did. Uh, to tell the story real effectively takes an hour, and it's probably yeah. best one on one. And anybody that wants to have that experience or that communication let me know I'm open to it Um, but just as a brief summary so I went on an LDS mission to Rio de Janeiro Brazil in 1999 and in 2001 my parents came down to pick me up and we toured the areas where I had been and we met the people and we gave out things like hats and shirts and um, we were having a good time. Well, a monsoon came in one night as we were headed back into Rio de Janeiro across the Niteroy Bridge. And we ended up missing our exit to get downtown Rio. And we ended up headed back towards the airport. And we, in that process, uh, we ended up in a bad part of town. And some men in another vehicle forced us off the road and proceeded to put um, 15 to 18 bullet holes in our car with us still in it. You remember in Fast and the Furious, um, when it's like Johnny Tran and his friends all pull up on their bullet bikes mm-hmm. and they spray yeah. the Vin Diesel and Brian Walker's car with Uzis. <laughs> that essentially was what happened to me like two, three years earlier, except for those guys bailed out of their car and it exploded because they had nitrous oxide in it. Our car didn't. It was just a Volkswagen. And we didn't get out though. But we, my dad and I both took three bullets. I took two through the chest, one in the arm. My dad took one through the chest, one in each arm. Uh, my mom was behind us, and I don't know how much you can tell, but I'm a big dude, my my dad is also a big fellow, and uh, we blocked those bullets. I actually stopped all three of them. My body was tough enough, I guess, that I stopped all three bullets, but it caused significant damage, and we were in the hospital for a long time. Um, we got better. John Huntsman, uh, John Huntsman Sr. flew us home in his Gulfstream, which was interesting. Um, My mom gave a press conference, and I'm told that it changed the country in that she gave a message of love and forgiveness, and that wasn't what they expected. And I'm told from Brazilian people that that really resounded with them, and it made them want to be better. And so I've learned that justice is, is valuable and worthwhile, but sometimes mercy is more powerful. And I learned that lesson from that experience. And I learned a lot more, but specifically regarding guns, while it doesn't sound like forgiveness and mercy to shoot back, the Brazilian people commonly face this kind of violent crime as a result of being disarmed. Now, the laws allow for gun ownership in Brazil, but they're very strict, especially in the bigger cities. They're very strict, kind of like our big cities, Chicago, Baltimore, they're very strict. And as a result, the criminals don't care about the laws. They continue to have guns. It's the it's the good people, the the law-abiding citizens that follow the laws. And as a result, the criminals know that they have disarmed victims and that they have very little risk in exercising their criminal behavior against those uh, that unarmed populace. And my experience has shown me that when when the people have guns, you have a polite public. Because if you're always worried that a good guy is going to shoot back you're not going to be aggressive towards them unnecessarily. And you're going to have, there's always going to be incidental harm that happens in society, but the actual uh, intentional harm is the biggest scourge on society. And the only way that I see to stop that or to prevent it to a great extent is for good people to have significant ability to defend themselves. And as a congressman, I will do everything in my power to not only protect the Second Amendment protections that we have, but to actually roll back the gun legislation that has restrained our abilities to defend ourselves in the most effective way.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. I thought when I first read it, I was like, this is super, super crazy, first of all. Um, but then I was like, I really like how you use that story to um, talk about your beliefs with the Second Amendment and how that kind of um shaped that view it's it's really cool how how that happened and like you said it would it had a good ending when a lot of them a lot of gun violence victims don't um but it's it's good to have the voice of someone who's been through that but is still advocating that you know we need to be able to defend ourselves when other people just say that's that's the problem right there um i want to ask you a little bit more in depth on this topic what do you think the problem is what is the reasoning behind the increase in gun violence in America? Um, if you had, I, it's a very broad question, but if you could. No, hit, no, no. I, I
1: completely know where you're coming from, and I have an answer. In fact, I have my problem is I come up with so many answers, and I don't want to waste all your time. No, you're um, I actually, those that know me well know that I have a really hard time saying in 50 words what could be said better in 500. And so I'm trying to select the 50 words that would be best as an answer. Uh, In my opinion, the number one, the core fundamental problem that is causing gun violence in our country, I would say education. Uh, I think that as as a result of a significantly weakened education system, people are desperate. Families break up as a result, which is another cause, but I think it again is caused by education. The broken family happens and we end up with with kids that don't have a parent around because that parent is scrambling to try and feed them. Oftentimes there isn't that. You end up with depression and welfare and you have kids just running wild and they don't get taught those critical lessons of the golden rule. They don't get taught how to actually earn for themselves and take care of themselves and be accountable and responsible for themselves. And without that, you end up having these animal instincts of just pure survival and anything goes and the ends justify the means. And those cast aside the ethics, the morality that we have that might, uh, that would hold us back from more extreme measures of providing for ourselves. I mean, realistically, my education leads me to believe that it's better for me to starve than to harm somebody to eat. And that seems fundamental to me. Uh, It isn't that way for everyone. In fact, it isn't that way for a lot of people in our common world. And as a result of that lack of education, that lack of moral basis, anything goes. And we end up with violence of all forms. And gun violence is just another avenue of that. Now, could that, even with our education system, could it be rolled back? Maybe. But the only way that I see that actually effectively rolls back gun violence without the underpinning, without addressing the underpinning problem is enforcement. Actual, objective, unbiased enforcement where anybody that causes harm has a jury trial, they get every benefit of every doubt, and then they have the punishment that the law weighs down on. And there is prejudice in our system, and our system overcharges to try and get guilty verdicts. And a lot of people go to jail for things when they didn't actually harm anybody, like drugs, and they end up getting becoming higher criminal, they they end up getting criminalized without having hurt anybody. And now they can't get jobs. They become more desperate as a result result of that cycle. It sometimes can create uh, recidivism or going back into the same problems and ending up back in jail. Uh, And so we have to have a really good justice system. I'm afraid right now we don't, neither federally nor in in the states.
0: Right. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, Now I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, Being part of the Libertarian Party, Republican Party, I'd say more now the Libertarian Party, is they're very much for limited government. Very, very much. Um, And there's been a lot of instances of government overreach in our state, in our country as a whole. I want to ask, if you get elected to the U.S. Congress, what will you do to push back against government overreach?
1: I can think of two things specifically offhand. Okay. Number one, um, government is funded by taxes and I want them to do less with less. Right. And if I can't get past, it's it's been difficult to rein in government programs, but when they run out of money and they have to actually pick to actually decide what's actually important to them and they have to listen to their voters, they have to respect the people. If the, if the money that government is getting is harder to get, it's easier for them to rein in some of that government expansion. So for me, reducing taxes in every way possible is probably my top issue to rein in overreaching government. The, the top priority I have for that is to continue to push through to repeal the 16th Amendment and uh, end the IRS and make states states again. You know, it wasn't that long ago when the federal government actually had to pass a budget and then go to the states asking for their share of that budget based on population. That was the point of the census that, and voting uh, representation. But that doesn't happen anymore. The states now go to the federal government begging for money. The federal government should be coming to the states asking for money. Right. And and the 16th Amendment put the federal government into each of our daily lives instead of it interacting with the states directly. So that's one. Number two is this. My default position in Congress will be that I don't want a bill to pass. I don't want government to get any bigger. I don't want it to have any more power. If a bill gives the people more power and the government less power or money, I will vote for that bill. Otherwise, my default position is a no. And I'm going to have to be able to see how that bill will cause either less power for the government or less money for the government before they're going to get me to vote on it. Just like Ron Paul explained to me a number of years ago, he said, he said, sometimes I had to be a party of one. I had to be the party of no. In fact, he said they called him Dr. No. And I'm willing to be that guy. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to shoot me? That's happened. I lived through it. Maybe I won't next time. It's okay. Somebody has to stand up and say no. Somebody has to be a grown-up on those really difficult conversations. And maybe a third thing, I won't vote for a bill unless I have time to read it. And so simpler bills have a higher likelihood of getting my vote. More complex bills have a lower likelihood unless I have lots and lots of time to read them.
0: Right. And a lot of times the congressmen, congresswomen, uh, they see this bill, they look at the title, they say, oh, that looks nice. I'm going to vote yes. But in reality, there's that fine print, the stuff that they don't really take the time to read, where it just ends up hurting people more than it helps.
1: That's true. When I talk to them frequently, and this happens at the state level as well, oftentimes they've read the summary and they talked with the sponsor. And so they have a pretty good outline of what it is. But they don't know that, like you said, the fine print. I would call it the minutia or the fine details. They don't understand all the little quirks, and then they also don't understand how how something small that doesn't really uh, doesn't really trigger any thoughts in their mind could radically affect somebody's business. And I want to give you an example on that. So there is a bill in the state of Utah that passed in twenty twenty one by a representative uh, out of Box Elder County. And it was just an amendment to construction standards. And I like standards. I think that it's good to have a, a standard so you can weigh what you're doing against that standard. But standards aren't standards anymore. Standards are rules. They, they come with government force. They imply a gun behind them in the state of Utah, well, everywhere for that matter. And so there was an effort to, there is always an effort to renegotiate the Colorado River Compact. Because a lot of water falls in Utah that then goes downstream to other states and eventually into Mexico. And from the county I live in, which is Iron County, uh, I'm told that we get about 9% of the water that would otherwise end up in the Colorado River, which is about the same amount that Mexico gets. And so even though it falls in our state, we get as much of it as Mexico and we get less of it than Arizona and Nevada and California. And so there's always an effort to um, renegotiate that. Well, in in that process, California said, why would we give you any leeway when you guys aren't doing anything to try and reduce water usage? And what they meant was you're not forcing your people to stop water usage. We constantly hear advocating for lower water usage, better water usage. It's a cultural thing. It's not a forced thing. But California apparently doesn't believe that if you're, if you're not forcing something, it's going to get done. And so the representative in Utah added to this to this construction standards bill that the any any new faucet in new construction in Utah would have to be a lower water usage than the standard anywhere else in the world. And so they lowered it. And remember, I run plumbing supply warehouses, hardware stores. And so water is a big deal for me the manufacturers notified me about this bill, uh, specifically uh, the faucet manufacturer Moen. They called me and said, hey, we cannot sell you any faucets anymore. And I said, well, why? They're my, I'm doing 3 million a year of, of their product. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, there's a bill in Utah that passed that says you can't use anything less than 1.8 gallons per minute, I think it was, in a faucet in the state of Utah. And and I said that's absurd. That's that's lower than anywhere in the world. And they said, well, that's what the bill is. So I got the bill. I looked at it. Sure enough, that's what it said. And I said, and I called my representative, who's a great representative, Rex Ship. And I said, Rex, we need to fix this. And he said, I didn't even realize that that was a problem. I didn't even. I don't know how many gallons per minute anything uses. And. I ended up, he ended up getting me a letter from legislative attorneys that said, well, it's only for new construction. Anybody in the state can still buy them. They can still use them. They can still exchange them. You just can't install it new construction. So that solved my problem. But the problem still exists on the books that a new construction now can't buy from. They, they have a limited selection of faucets because this bill creates an arbitrary limit that the manufacturers don't even have built up yet. And so new construction now gets inferior products at a higher price. And so in Congress, that happens as well because people don't know what they're looking at. So those are restraints I'll be watching for. Any restraint on the people, I'll be watching for and fighting
0: against. That will be a sigh of relief for a lot of people having a representative that doesn't just vote yes on everything. Um, It reminds me a lot of Mike Lee. Uh, he's known for voting no. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but Evan McMullen attacked him all the time for saying no to bills. When in reality, I'm like, I would rather have That's him say thing. no. I, yeah. yeah, I don't want him saying yeah. yes to everything because it looks cool. But I have one more question for you, and the question is simply just what is your message to Utahs? What is your message to Republicans or Democrats and why they should vote for you, the libertarian candidate, not the traditional Republican Democrat? party um you're you're just you're another option so why should they give you their vote
1: well my message my message to all voters and all Utahs is that it is not the federal government's job to fix your problems oftentimes the federal government is the problem and it's your job to fix your problems and congress if you give them all of your power and all of your freedom, they will do something that resembles fixing your problems while they take away your freedom, which will cause an even bigger problem. I won't do that. Now, what makes me different? What would? A, why would a Republican vote for me over a Democrat? And why would a Democrat vote for me over a Democrat? Uh, why would they vote for a Libertarian? I'm going to give it in the words that the Republicans and the Democrats would appreciate. In the Republican field, if you're a Republican and you're considering Uh, the people that are on the Republican ballot right now recognize that I am the conservative candidate in this race. Among the Republicans and Libertarians, I'm the most conservative. I was one of the founding members of the platform Republicans, which is an organization very familiar to Republican delegates and voters sometimes. Uh, I believe in the Republican platform more than any of the candidates on the ballot. I will fight for limited government, fiscal accountability, I will fight to actually protect our borders, and I will fight to let businesses have the ability to actually serve the public. I'll fight to lower taxes. I believe in life. I will be pro-life. I believe birth is an important part of the human experience, and I believe that life begins at conception. And... For Republicans, that's a big deal. Now, for Democrats, we disagree on that one, and that's okay. Let me tell you some things that Republicans and I disagree on that Democrats would agree with me on. I believe in ending the war on drugs. I think that we should be enforcing property crimes, and we should free up our court system to fight those property crimes. We should be enforcing actual harm. We should not be putting people in jail that have uh, mishandled a plant. Uh, I think that we should let people do what they're going to do. But when they harm somebody, we should come down hard on them. I think we should make immigration legal again. We should make it easy for people to get in from outside the country. And that isn't quite open borders, but it's as close as anything that's been asked for in the last 50 or 60 years. Um, I think we need significant reform to the justice system. Uh, Bail reform, tort reform. We need a significant reform in our courts. And I think There's something for the Democrats and there's something for the Republicans. And I'm willing to stand on those issues. And I won't have the weight of party loyalty dragging me into dragging me down. I will probably caucus with the Republicans because my my friendships, my alliances are mostly there. But there's some issues where I will stand aside from them, similar to how Mike Lee commonly has to vote by himself. Uh, Most likely in the House, I'll have to vote by myself, although Thomas Massey, sometimes he and I are on the same page. I will have a couple of friends in the Senate, probably Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee. Those are my kinds of guys. I'll be just like that in the House. And I probably here's here's my assertion. As my campaign gains attention and uh, energy and as the Republicans appear to be stuck with moderates. Um, I think it's possible that I end up with endorsements from Ron Ron Paul and his son Rand and Ted Cruz and I, Mike Lee doesn't normally give endorsements but maybe even him and that's going to be interesting as Republicans endorse libertarian and I probably can get some of the Democrats also uh, It's a unique experience this new special election. It's going to create opportunities for the Utah, the people of Utah to actually, hold a light up to the rest of the country and say we can actually hold principles up instead of party and support those principles. And I think Utah is probably the most likely to be able to make that shift. And it will make Utah the most influential on the national political stage.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that message to to voters, to anybody who's looking at your campaign, thinking whether or not they should vote for you. Um, I can definitely tell you that I've seen support from you from a lot of Republicans who I've known to, known and talked to. Um, your name has been brought up a bunch because uh, a lot of people are frustrated with how specifically the Republican convention went. Like you said, we're having mo- moderates being uh, put out by the party, and they're looking for someone who really wants to fight for conservative values and isn't afraid to stand up. So I definitely think you're going to be getting some good support. Um, and I want to wish you the best of luck with your campaign. And I want to thank you for joining me today.
1: Hey, thank you, Chase. If they're looking for something different, I'm their guy.
0: Awesome. That's great. We'll see you. Thanks, Chase. See you later. Yep.